Today we'll look at how Jesus comes to us, enters into this world, and enters into our suffering to rescue us as a refugee. Now what is a refugee? We'll start with a definition. There's a lot of discussion these days. But a refugee is a person who's been forced to leave their country in order to escape war, persecution, or natural disaster. And that's a, that's a good definition, but it's a cold definition. It's just a, an objective statement. But let me tell you a little bit more about how to answer that question, who is a refugee? A refugee is a Palestinian woman who has learned to make a fantastic baklava that nourishes you at your Christmas party. A refugee is the Iraqi soldier who wanted to stand against Al-Qaeda, so he joined the American military in Iraq and fought for your military and your freedom and therefore can't go back to his hometown and has to come live in another country. A refugee is a person like my friend Michael Lee, the best man in my wedding, who is so skilled and talented that it seems like he starts a new business every week and he runs for office in Vermont just on his free time. From Cambodia to America, helping our economy flourish. A refugee is a woman from Iran who's, who has to raise her children by herself in a land that she does not call home as her husband is in prison for preaching the gospel. It's a Somali woman. A Somali woman who saw her own children's lives taken in the very living room that she raised them in. It's a man by the name of Albert Einstein who is kind of good at science. It's a little boy who washes up on the beaches of Turkey from Syria. It's a man named John Calvin who is a theologian that has influenced this church maybe more than any theologian. And it's a guy named Ali that you just saw in that video. A friend of mine, an integral part of Redemption Church, who came from Afghanistan and was a Muslim who's come to know Jesus. And today is his birthday. And a refugee is a Middle Eastern little boy who became a Middle Eastern man who would be the savior of the world, bringing joy to the ends of the earth named Jesus. And that's who we're going to look at today. So we're going to dive into Matthew chapter 2, uh, and we're going to look at Jesus and his plight as a refugee. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and someone's going to come and give you that Bible. And if you don't need a Bible, you have one with you, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 2. Also, I should warn you, uh, just for like children in the room, that I will probably say some things and maybe show some images that could be a little hard to hear, a little graphic today, but we're dealing with a rated R passage, so we're not going to run from the Bible. So go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage, and before you go there, I want to tell you a little bit on why this is such a weighty topic for us right now in the leadership of the church and as a church. It's significant for us in a few ways. We've been praying about this. We've been pushing in to the issue of serving refugees and reflecting on Jesus as a refugee for a couple of reasons. One, because it's a historically significant time in the history of our world. And two, it's a significant time in the history of our church. So let's just look at what's going on in the world a little bit. Some have called this the greatest refugee crisis that the world has ever known. There are 21 million people 
in this world who are refugees, who have been displaced from their home from war or, or, or famine or national disaster or persecution and have to live somewhere else and have seen things that we can't even imagine. But even what's worse is that there are 65 million people who've been displaced and they have not even been given the official UN uh, designation of a refugee. Extremely painful things going on throughout the world of people dis being displaced from, the, from parts of the world that belong to God, looking for someone who will receive them. And that's what's going on in our world. They're coming from countries like Burma and Syria, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan. And what's worse is, or let me tell you some good news. So the good news is, I love the fact that our country takes in more refugees than any other country in the world. 70,000 every year and upwards to 85,000. And I think it's a point of just joy, like rejoicing. But it's also an interesting time in the world where there has been increased hostility towards people who are refugees. As a matter of fact, if you've been paying attention at all uh, this last week, there was a bakery in town. A bakery uh, that was owned by a Middle Eastern uh, family from Bethlehem, believe it or not. Um, and uh, they had someone come and smash in their windows at their bakery. And just as they had the windows repaired, someone came through and smashed the windows again. And it, and it was, those sorts of things are happening all throughout the country and throughout the city as there's this increased hostility towards people who are coming here as refugees. I have friends who've had guns pointed at them. I've had friends who get called some of the worst things you could imagine. And so there's a need for people, people who follow Jesus, who know this Jesus as a refugee to extend welcome and hospitality. And I think that our church is uniquely set up for that. And here's why. This is a significant time and a significant thing for our church. First of all, we are in Arizona, which I love. Arizona is a gift of a place. Arizona takes in, you laugh, but I'm dead serious. Arizona takes in more refugees than all but three states in the entire country. We have 60 to 80,000 refugees who live around here, and I love being here. And as a part of a church that's rooted in Arizona, Ten congregations spread throughout this state. I think there's a unique call on us to say, what are we to do in this unique time, in this unique place? But also, this is a part of the history of our church. See, our church has launched a number of initiatives over the years. We've had our interns get trained by living in refugee communities. Ted, who was up here before, he was one of them. Um, we, we've, we've had these big initiatives where we've uh, had friendship initiatives and, and, and uh, English teaching with hundreds of Somalis and with Uzbeks and entrepreneurship initiatives with the Uzbek community and the relationship there actually ended up affecting things globally and I'll tell you about that in a little bit. We've actually partnered with the Refugee Women's Health Clinic and we've like won these awards but we never like tell you about it because it feels really weird to come up on stage and say that we won awards and we've always just figured like how do we tell them about it so there you go you've been told about it. Um, but this is something that's been significant to the life of our community. And several of us have been praying for years that they would start doing refugee resettlement in the neighborhoods around the church, in the East Valley. And we've been praying for years. And then last spring, two, two refugee agencies came to us and said, we're coming to the East Valley, specifically because we want to work with the churches in the East Valley because of what they've done and what they've been like. 
And one of them even asked if they could run their operations out of this campus. So soon, as soon as they raise the money for the, their, their office, which is a part of our Advent offering, they're going to be able to come and start doing refugee resettlement here as an answer to our prayers. And so we're, we're focusing as a church, we're focusing our Advent offering, and there was probably one moment in the, the life of our church that stood out the most where we really sensed the calling to, to engage this thing. You know, I have to indulge me a little bit. I'm going to tell a little bit of a story before we dive into the text. See, it was about two years ago. It was May, uh, toward the end of May, where it gets really hot, right? Like, when you think, it is too hot to be not June yet, right? And it was hot, and, and there were some hot-headed people who decided that they were going to rally a bunch of people together. They were going to get these motorcycle gangs and this, these motorcycle groups. I have nothing against motorcycles, just part of the story. Um, they, they were gathering them together, and they were going to go outside of this mosque we're in this neighborhood that has the highest population of refugees in the entire state, the zip code of, of 85017. And they showed up there at that mosque, and they, they decided what they were going to do. Here's what their plan was. They were going to surround it. They were telling everyone to bring the gnarliest gun that you have, like AR-15s, bring your bulletproof vest, bring masks. And they're burning Qurans. They were going to yell at the people entering into the mosque. And they were going to uh, do, do horrible things. They were going to draw really lewd pictures of Muhammad. And they were going to try to agitate a response from them. I mean, can you imagine showing up to church and there are hundreds of people with guns surrounding the church, ripping up the Bible, burning the Bible, drawing lewd pictures of Jesus? And this was especially traumatic because they were from all these other countries and had gone through so much. So I did. I stepped up and I did my civic duty, the, the thing that we do when we see injustice in the world. I posted on Facebook and expressed my disgust. And I pretty much thought that was the extent of the activity that I was going to do, make me feel better about myself. But then some people from this church, you guys in this room, started commenting on the Facebook page, and you started saying, hey, this is in our state, in our city. We got to do something about it. And I really didn't want to do something about it because it's not fun to stand across from guys with guns. So we devised a little plan. See, I'm friends with the, the, the president of the mosque, and I had dinner with him the night before, myself and a friend named Adam, who's a leader of another church. And we devised this little plan that we were going to show up on that day the day that this was all going to go down, and that the Christians were going to come, and we were going to get to the sidewalk first. And our main goals were not to be uh, against anybody or a counter-protest, but were to be the people who were praying in the presence of, in the very place of pain in the city, praying for shalom in the most violent part of town that night. And then our second goal was that we were going to line up in front of the mosque so that if anybody were to pull the trigger and shoot at a Muslim, a bullet would have to go through the body of a Christian in order to get to them. And the reason we did this is to love our neighbor and to dramatize the cross, the very God who stands in the place of us, of, of, of the sin and, and of the wrath that's coming for us and absorbs death into his own body that we might have light, life. And we wanted to dramatize that before the Muslim community and before the world. And so... We, we planned it. But I wasn't expecting very many people to come because 
that's not something people come to a lot. You say, hey, there's going to be people with guns, and they might try to shoot you, uh, be there by 5.30. <laughs> Excuses abound, right? Especially when ISIS started tweeting about this thing, you know, saying these really ominous things that ISIS tweets. They're like, don't go there. There will be bloodshed. And, you know, yeah, I just mocked ISIS, yeah. But I don't like ISIS. If you do, I got issues with you. But ISIS was going was gonna to say, don't go there because there's something bad going to go down. So I wasn't expecting very many people, honestly, maybe 10 or 15. And what happened was, as I got there, I saw one of the most beautiful things that I'd ever seen. You see, I, I told people to wear blue shirts. Maybe it's a calming color. And I saw coming down the street hundreds of people in blue shirts. From churches around the city, about 15 churches I counted, the highest represented group was Redemption Tempe, you guys in this room, who were there, present, who lined up to be, to be a human shield to protect our Muslim neighbors. Now, we don't agree with them theologically, but we want them to, to know that they are loved by Christ and to dramatize that and to care for them. So we, we showed up, and it was beautiful. There was images that will never leave my mind of little 105-pound women, Sammy Selner, you know who you are, standing across from a 300-pound man with an AR-15 screaming vulgarities. Actually, that's the guy. I didn't realize that's the guy. Um, screaming vulgarities and her calmly praying for him. We decided to de-escalate it through humor and through other acts of kindness. We brought them water on that side. Anyone who was yelling the loudest, we would send someone over to listen to them, to kind of give them an ear to hear. And then I tried to use humor a little bit. I said, hey, would you guys, it would ruin my weekend if you killed me. So just like, just shoot my knees or something. Like, you'll still get props for, for shooting. But like, Jenny, would, my wife would be really upset because we got plans this weekend. Um, and I told him, I told him too, I said, and look, like, if you guys start shooting, I'm a fat guy. They're all going to run behind me. So just give, give me a break, all right? So the, the, the laughter kind of cut the tension a bit. But as we prayed in the midst of that city, the night ended with not a single shot fired, not a single punch thrown, not a single arrest even. And many of those folks went and apologized to the leaders of the mosque. And what happened following that, we had, that was, was really beautiful. Is, is the, the middle of the refugee neighborhood where that happened. People saw Jesus and they saw the gospel lived out. And we have had literally thousands of opportunities, like opportunities to speak to thousands of people and answer the question, why did you Christians do what you did that day? And we were able to answer the question by pointing to Jesus, the Jesus who goes on the cross and absorbs sin, Satan, and death into himself on his body, his bleeding body for us. And as I speak to them, I almost always come to the passage that we are looking at today, the passage where we see Jesus enters into this world as a refugee. So go ahead and open up your Bibles and open up to... Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, and that's, that's the magi, the, the wise men, uh, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. 
And he rose and he took his child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Now what we see in this passage is we see the showdown. The showdown from the, with the, between the present king, Herod, who was the king of Judea at that time, and a challenger, Jesus, a little baby, a refugee. And we see a showdown between a king, Herod, who's a tyrant, and a different king, a king, Jesus, who comes to us as a little baby, and one of his first acts in the world is as a refugee. And what we see is that this competition, this competition for kingship that Matthew shows us between the humble Jesus and the tyrant Herod is something that leaves us with a question that we must ask that I'll return to often today. And it's this simple question of who are you with? You see, with the great rivalries and showdowns of history, you always have to answer that question. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Who's Larry Bird? Who's Magic Johnson? Oh, okay. So most of you just watch baseball, apparently. Okay. Um, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. You have to kind of say, I'm with Larry or I'm with Magic. Or, or, um, or the Ali versus Frazier. Or, uh, you know, Tupac versus Biggie. Mac versus PC. Stalin versus Hitler. And a less dramatic rivalry, barely, ASU and U of A. You kind of have to get off the fence and say, who are you with? And I want to pose that question. Are you with King Herod, the tyrant, or are you, or are you with King Jesus, the refugee? And so what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to give you the bio as if, it, as if it's a boxing match. And you say, in this corner, Herod, and here's what his bio is. In this corner, Jesus, here's what his bio is. I'm going to give you the bio of the both of them and explain the interaction that they're having here in this passage and then as I give you the bio of Jesus, I want to explain how Jesus is the, the ultimate expression of all of our caricatures of refugees. He is the ultimate suffering refugee. He's the ultimate beneficial refugee. And he's the ultimate dangerous refugee. And ultimately the question is, who are you with? So let's start with King Herod. Let's, let's look over in the corner with King Herod and what he's like. So there's a little picture of him. He's got a nice gnarly curly beard. You know he spent some time curling up that beard. But Herod was a very interesting figure. He was the king of Judea, and his reign was from 37 to 4 BCE. And it was interesting because he was an illegitimate king. You see, he, the kings of Israel were supposed to come through the line of David, and he did not. He was not in the family of David. As a matter of fact, his hometown was this place called Edumia or Edom. It doesn't even sound like a place where dangerous people come from. Edumia. And Edom, it, it, it's, Edumia is Edom. Edom was a place that you look throughout Scripture, and these are always people who are very hostile towards Israel and towards God's people. And there was this thing called the Hasmonean Kingdom, this, this Jewish rebellion that kind of spread. And when, what they basically did is they forced the people of Edomia to convert to Judaism. 
And the conversion was kind of like a half-hearted conversion for a lot of people. They still lived with a Roman worldview, and they kind of mixed Yahweh in there a little bit, and they used it when need be. And, And Herod came from there, and his family came from there, and he was placed as the king, not, not because of his lineage, but as he was elected by the Roman Senate, they placed him there as to be sort of a puppet for Rome, to kind of tip his hat to Judaism, but also to be sort of a puppet for this distant uh, tyrant of, of the, the, the emperor of Rome. And his, he, Herod the Great was the was, was the first person in the Herodian dynasty. So all the guys that you see oppressing Christians and oppressing Jesus uh, in the Bible, they're all part of this family as far as the Herods go. Uh, Herod was not, pre- Herod the Great, that's what he is. I'm pretty sure he named himself that. He seems like the guy who would call himself Herod the Great. But Herod uh, was not the one who was there for the crucifixion of Jesus. That was his son. But his his presence and his family is harassing uh, and, and deeply oppressing the most vulnerable and persecuting Christians throughout uh, the Acts and the Gospels. So when you look at him, you got to know that there were some things about him that people definitely disliked, right? They, they, they disliked him. I'll run through the list. Augustus, who was the Roman emperor, said this about him. This is like a great first century diss track. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Those are some harsh words, especially if you know the context. The context being that, that Jewish people were not allowed to touch pigs or be around pigs, and that they were supposed to be people who cared for their family. And he's saying, this guy lacks such devotion and, uh, to, to his God and such uh, devotion to his family that basically it's better off to be Herod, Herod's pig than Herod's son. He's a guy who lacked family values. He had 10 wives, and he kept moving from wife to wife to wife. He even killed one of, one of his wives and two of his children because he was paranoid and spiteful. He lacked religious devotion. It was pretty clear that he was always tipping his hat to Judaism, and he could kind of talk the talk, but it was clear that he was more of an idol worshiper. He would set up these idols to uh, the, the Roman cult, to the Roman emperor, but he would also do these religious gestures to gain the, um, the, the affiliation or the approval of religious leaders. They would kind of overlook the hostile things he did because of his like, religious gestures of building a massive temple in Jerus- Jerusalem. He was also uh, very authoritarian. He came down hard on people, and he ruled with an iron fist. He was brutally violent. He tortured people. He killed his uh, own children. He would appoint priests, and he had one of his priests drown. He would uh, execute not just his enemies, but the families of his enemies. He was a bad, bad man. And, he, and also, you know, he raised taxes on people, so they didn't like him for that. But then th- they, there were people who liked him who, or who at least tolerated Herod and his kingship. One is because he strengthened the economy through building projects. He built a hippodrome, uh, a stadium, uh, an aqueducts. He built uh, the, the, the temple. He built a number of beautiful things, and he created a demand for jobs and materials through, through his, his building projects. And he was also known, as the historian Josephus says, to, uh, he made himself in charge of appointing priests, and he would appoint priests for political gain. 
In other words, he would appoint priests that, that would smooth things over for him and that people would like. And so they might not like him, but they at least liked the priest. He was also known as someone who provided security. And the, the Anchor Bible Dictionary says this, In the years following his ascension, Herod was almost obsessively concerned about the security of his rule. And so he would come down with an iron fist as he built fortresses and, uh, and built up his troops to, to make the place secure. So people stood, up, uh, stood for him a little bit. But the result of his reign, what Herod was all about, was creating stability for the most powerful and suffering for the most vulnerable. And many religious leaders sold out and sat at the table of Herod during this time. You see, in that time... Money was flowing in the, in the main streets, but tears were flowing in the back streets as he would come down hard on the most vulnerable, even little children. Clearly not a pro-life man because of what we're about to see in this text of what he does. And so the reality is there are many people with Herod in that day, but not just a historical figure in that day, but in this day, who are willing to say that the suffering of other people is okay with me as long as I'm comfortable, either explicitly or complicitly or implicitly bowing to the knee of Herod. So to stand up to someone like that, you need a real challenger, right? So in steps Jesus. Now we're looking at the corner of Jesus. And let me just catch you up on the story so far. Herod would not have thought twice about this little baby born in a little small town five miles south of Jerusalem. He wouldn't have thought about him at all if it weren't for these Arab astronomers who showed up. These guys who all day long are like looking for the stars and like looking for signs in the stars. They're called the Magi or the wise men. And, and, but can you imagine like nothing happening ever and you're like, I think that star says that we should do this. And they're just like making stuff up. And then one day like a real star shows up and it's like, I'm going to show you where the true king is. And they bring him to, to Judea. And these guys are looking to bow down and to bring their frankincense and myrrh and to worship this true king. And they happen to go upon the house of Herod. And you can imagine how that goes down, knock on Herod's door. Yeah, we're looking for the true king. You mean Herod? No, 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 no. The one that was just born, that's like the real one. Herod's not going to like that. So Herod plays along and he says, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I want to go worship that baby too. Yeah, yeah, just tell me when you find him. Tell me, give me his address. And I'll go there and worship him too. And so the, the Magi, they go and they worship Jesus and they find Jesus, but they're warned in a dream, don't mess around with Herod. He's bad news. He wants to harm this child. And Herod is absolutely furious. He's been tricked by the Magi. And that's where we pick up in verse 13. It says, And now when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord... Uh, came to Joseph, and he said in a dream, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. So this is where they're going to Egypt. But then we see that as they're going on their way to Egypt, this is when Jesus becomes a refugee. You see, tyrant, uh, this tyrant, Herod, he's picking a fight with a baby. And God is rescuing babies in that moment, but there's something really tragic that's happening. Mary, who's nursing this child, has to go on a 429-mile trek through the desert from Bethlehem to Egypt. 
It's significant that they're headed to Egypt because Egypt is the place where there was the most suffering in Israel's history as they lived under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And on this trek, they would face hunger and thirst and dangerous animals and people who would want to take advantage of them as displaced refugees that they were. And Jesus' first impressionable memories of, of this time were probably as a refugee in Egypt. Under two years old, here's probably what he would have looked like. The picture of the little boy who washed up on a Turkish beach in Syria. That's about the age that Jesus would have been, a Middle Eastern refugee who enters into this world to enter into the pain of people like that. And he's the king, he's the sovereign of, of the whole earth, he's holy, he's righteous, and as he comes, he comes as a refugee. And I'm telling you, he's the one that you should follow. That's the king that you should worship. But I want to give you the breakdown of his bio this king, Jesus, of whom, of whom Ray Bakke says the Christmas stories about an Asian-born baby who becomes a refugee in Africa. He was born in a borrowed barn and buried in a borrowed grave. I didn't make up this story. I just took the stained glass off of it. I'm going to take the stained glass off. And I'm going to say, let's just not say Jesus is a refugee, but let's look at what kind of refugee he is. And Jesus is the type of refugee who's the ultimate fulfillment of our very caricatures of refugees. He's the suffering refugee, he's the beneficial refugee, and he's the dangerous refugee. So I'm going to walk through those really quick and then ask the question, who are you with? So first of all, when you think of refugees, many people, their caricature is that of suffering. Many images come to mind as you watch the news. You think of, of things like the, the one that we just saw, but then you also see of the, the image of this boy who was bombed in Aleppo, just stunned at what's happening. You see uh, the streets full of people just wanting to get away at the place that they used to shop and that used to be their hometown. You see him stuck at a border, just wanting to find a place called home. And Jesus enters into that sort of pain. 50% of all refugees are children. All refugees endure things like torture from tyrants. They see the death of a loved one. They see that they're displaced from their home. They experience poverty, hunger, and thirst. Some of them are so educated and so competent. I met a woman who was working at Walmart here once, grateful to work at Walmart, spoke five languages and had two PhDs. But people like this get displaced from their teaching jobs at a university. And they have the triple trauma of a refugee being displaced from the only home you've ever known, the store that you used to visit, the street that has your memories, to be displaced from that. And then to spend years, upwards of, of 18, 20 years sometimes, in a refugee camp with very hostile conditions. And then to be resettled in the United States or in another country, a place where it isn't your home and you have to adapt culturally. And sometimes the, the true challenge of... of of adapting when people do not treat you with kindness. The guy I mentioned before, the Iraqi soldier who you know, worked with our military in Iraq, he's had people hold a gun over the fence from his neighbors and say, we're watching you, ISIS. We're watching you, Arab. We'll get you. This is the experience that people have because of some of the wave of hostility towards refugees. 
And it's incredible pain, but it, it is pain that Jesus knows about. He enters into a very painful world, and one of his first acts in his incarnation is to live as a refugee and to experience the brutality of the world. Verse 16 says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were under two years old, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Think about this for a moment. Can you imagine how this petty tyrant would devastate a community like that? Imagine you're sitting there in your village, and all of a sudden you start to hear the march of, of, a, of, a, of a police force or of like a military coming through the city. And you might be grateful that they're taking away someone who's committed a crime or something like that. And you're waiting and you're listening and you wonder who, I wonder who they're after. Then they knock on your door. Pull your child from your hands, your one-year-old son, and take him out into the middle of the street and end his life. That's the incredible pain that the mothers must have felt. And the tragedy of that community for generations would be unspeakable. But in the midst of all of that, Matthew's trying to make sense of it. And he's quoting uh, Jeremiah 31, 15, when he says, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And Matthew interprets the weeping of the streets of what's happening there and cor corresponds it to what's happening in Jeremiah when God's people, were, their hometowns were invaded and they were taken out of their cities, many of their family members dying, and they had to march along this road away from their home to Babylon where they would live as refugees. And that road goes right by Bethlehem. And in Matthew saying the type of weeping that happened in the Babylonian exile is happening now. And Jesus, the great king, is the one who's breaking into the world to deal with that. And one of the first ways he deals with it is by entering into it with his suffering. See, Jesus is what um, Ray Bakke says this about Jesus. He says, a whole village of baby boys died for Jesus before he had the opportunity to die for them on the cross. Surely this Jesus understands the pain of children who die for the sins of adults in our cities. Jesus understands the oppression of a tyrant as he had to flee through the desert because of Herod. He understands what it's like to be an Iraqi man who's tortured as he was up on the cross. He understands the loneliness of someone who's completely displaced and alone in a place that they don't know as he was alone there on the cross. He enters into human suffering as the true suffering refugee. And it's true for refugees and it's true for us. The deep pain that we experience, Jesus has entered into it. He is the true suffering refugee. So I'm going to tell, tell you a story about this, because I think part of what it means for us to follow Jesus in this time, in this place, is to suffer a little bit. Now, I think that there are big, sweeping, suffering things that we may have to do, but most of us will have to suffer in these small ways of giving up hours of our week. And part of what we're calling our church to do is enter in to walk with the refugee community and to serve them by giving up hours of our week, a minor suffering doled out in small payments that can have a huge impact. You see, our, we as a church, we've done this before. 
and it's had a huge impact. I'll tell you the story about our connection with the Uzbek community. We met with them. We said, we, they decided they wanted some English classes, and it was pretty incredible. It was, it was a great time. And they said, hey, maybe you could help us out with our entrepreneurship because we're really struggling as entrepreneurs, and we want to figure out how to do entrepreneurship well. And we're like, great, we'll help you start a business. They said, no, actually, we've started 11 of them. We're just trying to scale them. See, in six years, they had started 11 businesses in America because they saw on TV that the economy was hurting, and they're like, we need to create jobs. But they, we had this great connection with them. See, they had come from a hostile environment where a tyrant took them out and their community out because they were gaining influence as business people. And they had suffered much. And as the relationship formed and the Arab Spring happened throughout the world, something incredible happened. They decided that they wanted to organize this little group that was going to do a nonviolent protest to try to overthrow the tyrant in Uzbekistan. Pretty intense, huh? And you're thinking pie in the sky, but they did. They organized it. They organized this group. It was made of parliament members and uh, you know, former presidential candidates and all these Uzbek people. And they decided to have this Uzbek Congress in Germany. And they decided to send three representatives from the Uzbek community here, two of their leaders, and they raised money to send me there with them, having no idea what I'm doing. So we got there, and everyone's having these discussions, and it's great. And they tell me to stand up like every hour or so and to give a speech. And I'm giving like the worst speeches ever because I have no idea what's going on. And so I'm just like stringing together platitudes and Martin Luther King and love your neighbor and something like that, right? But what happens is there's a tense moment in the room where there's arguing. And I don't know what's going on. But it comes to find out that there's somebody that was a Muslim who's being appointed as a Christian to the leader of this movement and they're upset. They said, no, you can't have Christians as leaders in this movement. So I thought if there was any moment that I'm supposed to step up and say something, that's the moment, right? Wrong. The guys whom I came with, they stood up and they gave an impassioned speech about how there's this church in Arizona. And they pour themselves out for, for the Uzbeks in Arizona through English, through relationship, through entrepreneurship. And that they have proven that Christians and Muslims can work together. So they appoint this guy as one of the leaders of the movement, this new believer who's, uh, who converted from Islam. And then, believe it or not, they appoint me uh, to, a, to a role, to advise the main guy. And he basically says that my role is to train people in nonviolent protests. And I told him, I said, I don't know that much about it, so here's what I can agree to. If you just let me teach your whole community the Sermon on the Mount and about Jesus then I think that's what's best for him. And he says, done. So he commissioned me to teach about 80 Muslim guys about Jesus. It is incredible. Sometimes I think my life is like a combination between the book of Daniel and Forrest Gump or something like that. <laughs> um, but, the, but many people heard the gospel and, and uh, because of the work, the small bits of suffering doled out over hours as people tried to work through grammar with their Uzbek friends. It's bread that, that God can multiply and bless the nations with. And I'm going to go through these last two points rather quickly. But we see that Jesus is not just the caricature of the suffering refugee. He's also the beneficial refugee. He's the ultimate beneficial refugee. See, when people think about refugees, they think about beneficial people and the benefits it has to America. And that's absolutely true. 
You can think of people like Albert Einstein and Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Mis, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and uh, smart guys like Einstein. And you can think about the economic impact of a history of incredible entrepreneurship that comes from immigrants who come to this country. After all, if you've faced the risks of ISIS, the risks of entrepreneurship aren't that big of a deal. You can think about the benefits that come from the cultural richness of what would life be like without Stravinsky's piano or Santana's guitar or without hummus and pad thai and those sorts of things. So people will often argue for the fact that we want refugees because of the benefits that it brings to society. But there is a refugee who's the ultimate beneficial refugee, namely Jesus. You see, the, all of the messianic literature that talked about the, the Messiah, it was talking about one who would come, this king who would come, who would unseat the evil rulers and who eventually would bring about complete flourishing and restoration for the world and would renew all things. And that person that they're putting forward is Jesus. There are passages like in, in Isaiah 11 that talk about the wolf laying with the lamb and the leopard lying down with the young goat and the little boy playing with a cobra. Now these passages aren't to be interpreted like literally little children play with cobras now when God restores all things. But it's using the deepest imagination, the deepest language that they have to try to give you a picture of what true flourishing looks like and what it'll look like when the Messiah comes. And Jesus in his first coming makes us right with God through the, his life, death, and resurrection. But in his second coming, he's coming to renew and to restore all things to bring more benefit than you could imagine. And if Isaiah was reaching for language to describe the flourishing of God's future coming kingdom, he would probably use language like this. That the kingdom is going to look like Aleppo becoming the greatest vacation spot around, better than the beaches of Hawaii. That all of our bottled water will come from Flint, Michigan, as it's refreshing and clean. That the loneliness of Christmas will be swallowed up by the joy of a massive, eternal, cosmic Christmas party where people don't get drunk and get mad at each other. Nuclear silos will become swimming pools and prisons will be turned into museums that celebrate freedom and children's hospitals will be repurposed into playgrounds and people from all tribes, tongues, and nations will join their vo voices in an eternal worship of the king who's renewed and restored everything. Much like what we hear when we sing the songs, Joy to the World, that he comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And this is our king who comes in and offers something better than Herod. He says, there might be some suffering now, but I'm making it all better. Not just for some people, but for all people. Joy to the world. Yeah. And so that's our king. Jesus, the beneficial refugee. And I close with Jesus, the dangerous refugee. Because sometimes people's perspective of, Jesus, of refugees is that they're dangerous. I mean, let me just give you some words and, and what it stirs within you. Sarnayev brothers, Boston bombing. San Bernardino, shooting in a Florida nightclub. Ohio State University, France, Turkey, Iraq, Bangladesh. Most of those things are terrorist attacks that have happened in 2016. And, and none of them have happened from official refugees. As a matter of fact, Official refugees have not committed any terrorist attacks, and lawnmowers, lightning, armed toddlers, and falling out of bed kill more people than refugees do in the United States. 
But here's the deal. It could happen. And there could, there, it could happen that a refugee comes and does a terrorist attack. And it could happen that, that terror happens, especially with the, the hostile climate towards them. They become susceptible to wicked people kind of uh, giving them propaganda. But let me tell you, there's one thing that can give us comfort in the midst of that. It's that there is a more dangerous refugee. One that everyone will have to stand toe-to-toe to and be held accountable for the evil things that they do. Jesus is that. And the messianic literature doesn't just say that this is a king who comes and restores and makes all things right. This is a king that goes toe-to-toe with evil. It says that he shall strike the earth in Isaiah with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's bad breath, right? (laughs) But that's our Savior coming as restorer but also as judge. Now, many of us feel uncomfortable with the idea of a God as a judge, but that's probably because things are pretty good for us and we're comfortable. But as I've experienced people who've suffered in the world, they need, they desperately need to know that there's a judge out there. We sat down to do a little English assessment with the Somali community years ago. And we were just asking a few questions to assess their English level and what class they should be in. And the mere simple questions we couldn't even get through without tears. We asked the date of your birth. And everyone said January 1st. The date given to the people who were experiencing such trauma when they were born that they don't even remember the specific day. We asked them about how many children do you have? How many brothers and sisters do you have? These simple questions to just figure out their English level. And the mere question would cause tears in the eyes of these Somali women. They would say, I had four children. I had two brothers. Because someone had come into their village and burned everything down and taken the lives of many. Now, it is good news that there is a judge, a refugee more dangerous than any that you can imagine that that person will have to be held accountable to one day. It is good news that those who've been abused will have to stand before someone today, one day, and be held accountable. It is good news that the Herods, the Karimovs, the Assads of the world have to stand before someone who's stronger and will hold them accountable. ISIS doesn't get away with what they do. They have to stand before a judge. The sexual predators and the lobbyists with bad intentions and the unjust lawmakers and all who have done evil to you and evil to our friends who are coming into this community, they will have to stand before a judge one day. And that's huge, but it should make us tremble as well. Because we know that there are many well-meaning religious people who sat at Herod's table and read him Bible verses to comfort him but who will also have to stand before that judge. And you and I are in line too. And it should make us tremble, but it should also give us hope. Because if there is one who's stronger that people will be held accountable to one day, you don't have to fear. You do not have to be afraid of a thing in this world. For all of us who since Genesis 3 and the fall have been displaced from the garden we were intended for, 
all of us becoming refugees. And Jesus, the great refugee, is the suffering refugee who suffered on your behalf, died on the cross for your sins to reconcile you to God and to bring you to your true home in him. He's the great beneficial refugee who will take everything from your knee pain that you're feeling right now to the systemic issues in Syria and, and, and renew them and restore them and make life right again when he returns again. And for us, Jesus is the dangerous refugee who will hold accountable everyone who has ever done wrong to us and hurt us and also who stands in front of the wrath of God and absorbs it for us, for those who sit at his table. So I ask this question to you. You're going to sit at Jesus' table, the king, the refugee king, or Herod, the tyrant king? Will you choose a life of self-preservation or self-giving love? The king of comfort or the one who says joy to the world? the king of temporary security, or the king of eternal security. And if you're with Jesus, and that's your, your, your table, then, then let's respond. Let's respond right now. And here's how we respond. First of all, if you want to get involved in serving refugees, we're going to have a vision night on January 18th. Let us know through an info card. Just write down and write the big number 18 and put your email there, and we'll let you know where, where it's at. Also, the Advent offering for the World Relief Office, that, that uh, we can participate in this Advent offering. Right here, I've showed you this before, the first envelope. Seven-year-old girls started a lemonade stand, says, this is for the people, P-E-P-L, in Syria that have no home. This is the first contribution. We can get in with the rest of us and, and, and make World Relief's office open. And then finally, we celebrate today by taking communion together. And the communion that we have today is different than other days. The bread that was baked for our communion today was baked by the bakery that has been vandalized recently. And that family is from Bethlehem. They're, they're Palestinian refugees from Bethlehem. And what better way to celebrate Jesus by eating bread that was made with their hands to celebrate the hands that were pierced for us to break this bread in remembrance of the broken body of the, the Palestinian refugee from Bethlehem who came to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us, that you have entered into the brokenness of history and you have sent the one and true King, the Messiah, Jesus, who comes to us as one who suffers on our behalf, who brings about flourishing and will make your blessings flow as far as the curse is found and the one who holds accountable all those who contributed to evil we thank you jesus that you entered into this world and got your hands dirty and lived as the true king of the world and we just want to worship you this evening in jesus name amen